Beauty can be very unfair, can't it? It doesn't always seem to be given to the people who are most deserving. In fact, sometimes it seems to be given to people who are less deserving. Kanye West, the prettiest people do the ugliest things. You often find that, don't you? That You think that person's stunning to look at, but my goodness, she's just doing and saying ugly things. And it just doesn't seem to be very fair. Actors and actresses and pop stars and celebrities provide us with plenty of examples, I guess. Some of the most attractive people in the world make some of the worst choices. But they appear on TV as stunning as ever. And you think, man, that doesn't seem fair. Like, I feel like I, I look like this, but I feel like I made better moral choices than you. It, it, there doesn't seem to be a connection between how attractive or beautiful people are and how moral they are. It's true of great artists as well. People who create great beauty are often not the most morally upstanding people. I think you could argue that one of the most juvenile, foul-mouthed, unpleasant, immature people in history was Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart who, in my judgment, has written the most beautiful music to be written in human history. You could debate that, right? But, I mean, it's hard to argue. You listen to Mozart's record and you think, how, has some, how can a human do that? And yet, at the same time, how can he be... What an immature, spoiled brat. And actually, there's a whole... You know, there's an Oscar-winning movie about it a few years ago called Amadeus. It's basically about that. The lead character is saying, this is so unfair. This awful person can write this almost divine music. How is that right? It's true of many of our greatest painters, if you were to do the history of art. It's true of many of our greatest poets and performers and playwrights. You'd say, that person's unbelievably talented and gifted, and yet, as a person, they're very unpleasant and odious, and when what they've done in private gets exposed, you think, ugh, I can't believe I ever used to like their art, their music, their acting, their whatever it might be. I guess it's true of your playlist, right? You, the playlist you have on your, your phone or whatever it is you use, the people with the capacity... God-given capacity to create the most beauty are not always the most deserving. And it's a, something I talk with my son a lot about at the moment. He's 12 and he just finds it quite hard to get his head around the fact that people who are exceptionally able to do beautiful things nevertheless make appalling moral choices and how to regard people, how to regard the unfairness even of the fact that God gives enormous gifts to some even though it would seem they don't deserve it. I find it's true, of, not just to people, it's true of places. So I have one of the most beautiful commutes in the world. Right? When I drive here from where I live in Eastbourne down on the south coast, I drive up a, a road called the A267, which basically between a little town north of me called Hailsham and Tunbridge Wells, you drive for about 25 miles through what's basically this stunning avenue, and particularly around this time of year in the high summer, where it's just it's dappled light and it's forest green coming every which way. In May, it's carpeted with bluebells. In June, it's rhododendrons and azaleas, just bright, lurid pink shining out onto the road. And it's everywhere you look. Then you get a little crack in the trees and you can just see rolling hills over to the next church bell tower. Everything's thatched. You've got signs on the side saying logs, cherries, eggs. I mean, it's just otherworldly. Such a beautiful drive. And yet the people who live on either side of that road aren't any better than the people who live anywhere else in this country. They're not any better than the people who live in flat, barren wastelands where there is nothing, like Luton. No, that's really unpleasant. I don't, I'm sure there's lots of lovely people in Luton. But you know, there's no quality that people who live in the Sussex Weald have that people elsewhere don't have. The people with long driveways and thatched houses and glorious scenery might be lying, cheating, abusive racists. And yet, they are blessed with incredible beauty. You know, the same actually is true of our whole country. I find this every time I fly 
I mean, obviously, I haven't flown for a long time now, but when every time I fly, you come back from a country which is almost always a lot drier than this country, and you're circling around over Gatwick, and you look down, having been away for a while, a week or two, or whatever, and you look out the window, and I always say something like, I can't believe how green England is. It's so beautiful. It's just so lush and verdant and gorgeous and festooned with flowers and deep green. And it just somehow doesn't seem right. Because whenever I land at Gatwick, I might also have just come back from somewhere where the country's far drier, far more barren, far less grows. It's not as pretty. And yet, I've been somewhere where the believers are more faithful than I am. They're more prayerful, more joyful, more persevering than I am. It might be that the country I've come from has behaved far better and invaded far fewer other people's countries and bombed fewer countries than mine has. And yet here I am in England, surrounded by beauty, and I come from somewhere that's far more barren and dry. And there might be a barren scrubland, while mine is a verdant paradise, and it's not because of our behaviour, it's because the place where I live has a lot of rain. And the place where they live has less. Theologians call that idea common grace. The idea that beauty, as an actor, as a composer, as a face, as a landscape, beauty and blessing are given to people because of God's benevolence, his goodness and kindness, rather than because of our abilities or our merits or even our faith. England is as secular as it has been for 2,000 years, but it's still incredibly beautiful. And it doesn't seem fair, and that's because God has lavished his common grace on the, all the, on the whole world. He's lavished his common grace on people, on artists, on just physical beauty. And he's poured out grace, not according to merit, but simply poured it out like rain. And so I want to talk about rain and see how the Bible uses the image of rain to talk about the grace of God. Firstly, from Matthew chapter 5, and then from Acts chapter 14. Let me first you read Matthew chapter 5. This is what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbour and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And then Acts chapter 14, beginning at verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who couldn't use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. So this is now after the resurrection of Jesus and the Spirit's been poured out, Paul is preaching. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, People, why are you doing these things? We also are human of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. 
In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he didn't leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of God. Two very different passages, right? One is Jesus teaching people to love their enemies. The other sees Paul and Barnabas hailed as gods and staving off the crowds by preaching the shortest and I think the oddest sermon in the New Testament. On the face of it, these two stories have very little in common. But the revelation of God is the same in both sermons. The revelation of God is that God is abundantly, overwhelmingly, implausibly, indiscriminately good to people, and you can tell because of rain. That's the message of these two sermons in these sections. God pours what we call common grace, as in grace for everybody, not just the grace of faith, but grace to the whole world. He pours common grace on people. Rainfall, sunshine, harvest, gifts. Whether or not they deserve it, or even believe in him, the world is blessed by the benevolent goodness of God. And you can tell because of rain. So start with Matthew 5. Verse 44 to 45, Jesus says, very famous words. We often miss the theology bit and just get straight on to what you have to do. But Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons and daughters of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Little pub quiz fact. This is the first thing Jesus says about God in the New Testament. It's a weird thought. Right? It's, actually, it's the first thing he says about God in the Sermon on the Mount, first thing he says about God in Matthew, and it's the first thing he says about God in the whole New Testament. Because Matthew 5 is the first time Jesus says, this is what is true of God my Father. And it's about rain. He says, your Father in heaven, this is the first thing Jesus says about God, your Father in heaven makes the sun rise on the evil as well as the good, and he makes the rain fall on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God your Father is so good that he blesses people even when they don't like him and don't even believe in him. When they offend him, when they turn their backs on him, God will make his sunshine on them just the same. God will make his rainfall on them just the same. So the first thing Jesus says about God in the New Testament is that he doesn't allocate his gifts according to merits or even faith. He's just so benevolent, he's so abundantly good that he pours them over everybody, good or evil. And if you want to be like God, Jesus then says, you need to do that. You need to love your enemies. There's no good just loving your friends. Everyone does that. No, you don't get points for that. You need to love your enemies, not because you get points for it, but because when you do, you will be like your father because he loves his enemies, because you can tell, because he lets it rain on people and make the ground sprout forth fruit, even if people are evil. So you need to do that too. You need to love your enemies. You need to pray for your persecutors. You need to give to people who will never give you anything back. If I was God, I wouldn't have made a word like that. I'd have given sunshine and rainfall to good people or faithful people. And I've given frozen deserts to bad people. And before you know it, the entire world, although I might start off saying the whole entire world will be fair, what would actually happen is the entire world would be powered by legalism. Everything that you got would be exactly what you deserved and the world would be a terrifying place with no grace and no gift. But God is gracious. 
God didn't make a world like that. He could have, but he didn't. He scatters gifts like showers and grace like rain. And he wants you to be like him. And that is so hard for us to get our heads around, I think. Because we are natural legalists. We naturally do that, don't we? We believe that good things and bad things happen to you because you deserve them. Left to our own devices, all human beings really believe in something like karma. That's, base, that's the default setting of a human being. You go, yeah, you do something good to me, do something good to you. The gods, God, whatever, the universe, it's probably like that. So let me give you a couple of examples of how this affects us in, in the church, right? One is I've been listening to a podcast recently about a, a very, very gifted American pastor whose church was horribly broken up as a result of his sin, really. And it's fascinating listening to the podcast and just thinking, wow, we really do in the church see gift as evidence of character. We almost go, that person's so gifted that they must be a godly person because God wouldn't give a gift like that to somebody who wasn't a godly person. You ever think like that? Right? Maybe you might think, well, no one at King's is that gifted, so it's not an issue. I don't know. But, you, but you've probably heard of people like that. And you thought, wow, that level of gift in charismatic preaching or theological interpretation or worship leading or, spirit, or healing, you might say, that person he can heal people in Jesus' name. They must be right. They must, be, they must have great character. They must be godly. And, of course, that doesn't follow at all. We struggle to realize that giftedness is not really that related to godliness. Because God gives gifts like rain. And often in the church, you find there isn't necessarily a tight association between the two. And it leads churches into a lot of pain because they think you're so gifted, you must be right. And so if someone's accused you of abuse here or adultery there, I, I mean, that can't be true. They're so gifted. You think, no, they might very well be true because their gift is not proof of their godliness. Second example of how this affects us in the church, might be a more personal one for you. Uh, one of the most powerful pieces of... Uh, advice I ever had, a friend of ours in a church called Dave Holden, uh, and he's a sort of older, wiser guy, pastors a church just down the road in, in Singapore, did for many years and still there. And I, I, me and my wife spoke to him and, and his wife Liz a few years back and just said, look, we're just really struggling because there are contemporaries of ours who have just got this incredible capacity for work and achievement and I mean they write they write all of these books, they plant these churches, they've got such leadership capacity, they're evangelizing all the time and they've got Four, in one case, four kids, another case, five kids. They're just, it, and we can't measure up. Like we, we're, we're struggling to make life work with two children and feel exhausted all the time. And like, we're just really struggling, floundering. Have you got any, any advice for us? And I always remember Dave Holden just saying to us, he said, Oh, you can't compare yourself with freaks, he says. He said, You can't compare yourself with freaks. He said, I, I could have done that my whole life. And he gave examples of how people, he, he said, I had the same with Terry Virgo, be a name known to many of us founding father of our whole movement. He's a bit of a freak, to be honest. Flies around, he's 80, flying around the world, preaching everywhere, writing books, brilliant dad, brilliant grandfather, great husband. I just, I can't live up to that. And he said, oh, but you just, you shouldn't even try. You just can't compare yourself like that. You've got to recognize that the gifts that God's given you are for you to work out. And they're not because of, they're not a reward for good behavior or good character. You've just been given those gifts. They've been given other gifts. They're responsible for theirs. You're responsible for yours. Don't compare yourself with freaks. It set me free, friends. And it may set you free too. And it's, it's, it's baked in, isn't it, that we are legalistic and think gift and character or godliness belong together. And Jesus is saying, no, your heavenly Father gives the rain to just people and unjust people, total scoundrels. But when Adolf Hitler walked down the street and it was raining, it rained on him as well. 
When Adolf Hitler got up in the morning and it was sunny, he got to bask in the sunshine like everybody else because God doesn't punish people in that way, in the moment, with a lack of weather. He gives his gifts to everybody. And you might think he shouldn't, but that's how good he is. Gifts are not rewards. And that's so foundational to the gospel and so foundational to our understanding of the benevolence of God, the goodness of God, that it takes center stage in what I in the other passage we read, which is in Acts 14. And I said I think it's probably the it's certainly the shortest, I think it's probably the oddest sermon in the New Testament. It's like an evangelistic message. And what basically Paul said, well, I'll read it to you. This is this long. We bring you good news. Right? Paul and Barnabas saying, don't sacrifice to us, we're not gods. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things, idols, to a living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, all that's in them. In past generations, he allowed the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he didn't leave you without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. End of sermon. What on earth is that? That's an evangelistic message. Imagine a baptism service here and someone says that and sits down. You go, where's the gospel there? And the first dozen times I read it, I thought, what's he doing? Come on, Paul. Where's the crucifixion? Where's the resurrection? Where's the gospel? And he talks about rain. Now, admittedly, these are Luke's edited highlights of what Paul said. And I expect, knowing Paul, he did in the same context, also talk about the cross and resurrection. But even, even given that, why does Luke draw out for us that little segment? Don't worry, the God that you should turn to, turn away from idols and turn to worship the living God, and he is a God that has already witnessed to you how good he is by giving you rain and harvest, even though you don't know him. Why is that the focus of this message? Because these people are worshippers of Zeus, which means they worship the kind of God that I described a few minutes ago that I would be. They worship the kind of God that people make up. A God who says, if you're nice to me, I'll give you good things. If you're nasty to me, zap. And Zeus is like that. If you know the Greek mythology, you'll know. Gifts by the gods are almost always backhanded. They're almost always, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. The gifts go wrong. Pandora's box or the Trojan horse. They're always like, the gifts in the Greek world are, are sneaky. They're tricksy. They're not just gifts. They're, there's always an angle in those myths because they're basically the kind of gods that you and I make up. And we know that these people are Zeus worshippers because verse 12 says, Barnabas they call Zeus in human form. And verse 13 says, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city. So if you lived in this town, you would walk into the town past a temple to Zeus, who is a god who basically gives you good things if you're nice and bad things if you're naughty. Like the worst aspects of Father Christmas. And like all pagan gods, Zeus scratches, Zeus scratches your back if you scratch his. In that cultural context, context, it is vital for Paul to stress that the real God, the living God that Paul is preaching, the God who healed the man that's caused all of this kerfuffle in the first place, is nothing like Zeus. He is indiscriminately, abundantly gracious and good to everything he's made. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, the psalmist said, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The Lord is good to all, and his compassion is over all that he's made. That was vital for them to hear, and it's vital for you to hear as well. Right? It's not just vital for Zeus worshippers. It's vital for self-worshippers in Britain today. We are, as I said, we're natural legalists. We think everything happens for a reason. We think you get what you deserve. We think karma is a thing. But God is not like that. The gospel is the precise opposite of that. The gospel is that you get what you don't deserve. 
And Paul wants to start these people off in the right place by saying, the God I'm talking about, even if the only evidence I've got to show you is rain, the God I'm talking about isn't like you think. He's not like Zeus. He's a God of unmerited, overflowing benevolence and kindness to everything he's made, and he lavishes blessings on you and on everyone that they've done nothing to merit. And he provides tangible reminders of the fact that he's like that every time the sun rises and every time it rains. Rain, in that sense, is a physical enactment of the boundless, indiscriminate grace of God. So next time it rains, you might want to go outside. Your neighbours will think it's a little odd, but go outside and just stand there and reflect as the rain lands on you, even just for a few moments. And just allow the rain, every droplet of rain to say, this rain is not falling on me because I have merited God's gifts and neither does grace. This rain is falling on me because God is a kind, benevolent, good God who showers rain on the just and on the unjust and makes his sunrise on the evil and on the good. And by preaching to the Lystrans about it, Paul is emphasising the, the goodness of God in order to prepare the Lystrans for the torrent of grace that will come when they hear about Christ. And by making the, Jesus, by making rain and the grace of God, the first thing that Jesus says about God in the New Testament, he's a father who gives rain to good and evil alike. Jesus is preparing us for the father who is going to forgive all of our sins because we just don't know what we're doing. And that, of course, is a theme that dominates the four Gospels, isn't it? Judas is going to heal the sick and cast out demons, even though he doesn't deserve it. Peter is going to be reinstated after denying the Lord Jesus three times, even though he doesn't deserve it. The lost son is going to be welcomed home with a ring, a robe and a roast, even though he doesn't deserve it. The Johnny-come-lately workers in the vineyard are going to get paid just as much as everyone else, even though they don't deserve it. And two criminals will die on either side of Jesus, both as guilty as each other, one of them will turn to the Lord in his dying minutes and find torrents of grace like rain sweeping him into paradise, even though he doesn't deserve it. I was listening to a message this week by a man called Alistair Begg, who just gave this brilliant story about what happens when the crucified criminal who gets saved in his dying moments arrives at the gates of heaven. And the angel says to him, what are you doing here? And he goes, I don't know. He says, who are you? What are you? Your name wasn't, I don't understand. Why are you here? And he says, I really don't know. What do you, what do you want me to say? They said, well, okay, well, let's get a few things straight then. Are you clear on the doctrine of the Trinity? I goes, never heard of it in my life. He says, okay, well, hang on. Are you clear on justification by faith alone? <laughs> wouldn't know what it was if you paid me. He says, are you clear on the authority of scriptures? I've never read the scriptures. And then eventually the angel says, so what on earth are you doing here? And the man says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. He's a God who showers grace like rain. He's a God who is good to all and has compassion on all that he has made. We're invited to enjoy and receive his grace and to worship him together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your almost too good to be true, hard to believe, incomprehensible goodness and kindness that has been expressed to us most beautifully in the Lord Jesus but to be honest every time it rains and every time the sun rises Lord thank you for the grace of God may we be those who enjoy and live in the good of your grace 
who express it towards others by loving our enemies and doing good to those who persecute us. And may we never dilute the message that you presented to the world as if it's a message of you do good things, you get good things back. May we always revel in the fact that we have been saved by grace, by a God who loves us and for no other reason than that the man on the middle cross said we could come. Hallelujah. Amen.